When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. I wanted to start by saying Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. Happy almost new year. I hope you're doing well sitting somewhere warm with friends and family. I am recording this the week before Christmas in Los Angeles, along with Ben Rhodes, who will join in a second. But my body, as you download this, will be sitting in Boston, Massachusetts. So it's nice to see a little cold weather and snow for a time. The episode today is an attempt to talk about some of the big things in the news this week and then to look forward to 2019. So we talked about President Trump's decision to pull all U.S. service members out of Syria, an announcement he made via tweet. We talked about a really cool announcement by Major League Baseball that the ways they're working with Cuban players that is impactful and that Ben Rhodes knows a lot about because he negotiated it. And then we tried to turn the conversation forward to talk about some things in foreign policy that we think might be noticeably different in 2019. So we talked about U.S. policy towards Israel and how that might be impacted by changing opinions about settlements and the Democratic primary happening on the left. Then we talked about North Korea. Obviously, the Singapore summit has not actually eliminated the threat of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. What does that mean and where do things go from there? And then we talked about the U.S. and Russia, and not in terms of the the Mueller investigation or hacking, but we actually talked about a speech President Putin gave it as annual press conference where he talked about the rising risk of nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia because of the U.S. walking away from a whole bunch of arms control treaties. So, of course, because this is Crooked Media and Pot Save America, and we are always getting one-ups by the news cycle, the minute Ben left the office, President Trump tweeted that Secretary Mattis will no longer be serving as the Secretary of Defense. He's going to name someone new. It was notable because Mattis resigned clearly because he disagreed with President Trump's decision about Syria. Uh, His resignation letter might as well have just stated that in bold letters. There's also rumors that Trump might pull out of Afghanistan and in a similar fashion precipitously. Who knows? Maybe he'll have announced as much by the time this airs. But I think a lot of people are going to be worried about Mattis leaving. He's seen as an adult in the room. He is someone that has decades-long relationships with foreign leaders, with foreign militaries, with members of Congress. You know, I think that people probably make too much of his influence. I think ultimately President Trump is reckless and impulsive and doesn't care to learn about issues and doesn't care to listen to advice that he doesn't already agree with. And he's going to do what he wants to do no matter who is in this job. But, you know, if I were a U.S. service member, I'd be concerned because, you know, you would go from someone running the Pentagon who's widely respected and who I think we all would agree has the best interests of the U.S. service members he commands at heart to an unknown. And that really sucks if you're a soldier or an airman or a Marine going into Christmas. And that is not a a great way to treat them. But Before I get to the conversation with Ben, I just want to say thank you to you all for listening to the show. It really means a lot to me that I get to do a show every week about foreign policy, including some issues that are really tough to listen to, some things that are not necessarily breaking news. And you guys tune in and you care and you tweet at me about ways I can do better or ways to get involved and become more active. And it just it's the most fun and rewarding thing I do every week. And I wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't listen and support the show. So I just wanted to say thank you. And uh, that's it. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Without further ado, here's the conversation with Ben. The first thing that we should talk about is pretty topical, which is Trump's decision this week to just pull everybody out of Syria. We just had a great conversation about the problem with his (laughs) open-ended commitment of troops to Syria. Uh, The Washington Post reported on like Monday that he had open-ended. But yeah, I mean, you know, so... Like, as of very recently, he said there were going to be 2,000 troops in Syria indefinitely. They talked about it as a policy designed to defeat the Islamic State, but also to check the growing malign influence from Iran. Uh, This is just kind of funny. Just days before Trump's (laughs) announcement, Brett McGurk, who we worked with back in the day when he was our 
top diplomat in Iraq and other places, he was quoted saying, nobody is declaring mission accomplished. Uh, this will be a much longer campaign. I guess they did declare mission accomplished. You know, John Bolton had also been out there recently saying that the mission was going to take a long time. But Trump changed his mind. He said he tweeted, actually, sent a little video out. Uh, he said that we've defeated ISIS in Syria, so it's time to get out. It is worth noting that there are like three separate reports, including one by the Pentagon Inspector General, that say that ISIS is not defeated and that there are between 20,000 and 30,000 fighters still in Syria. So this was obviously real messy. And I mean, maybe yeah. we start with the process point. I mean, there was no there was no discernible NSC process, no deliberation, yeah. no heads up to Congress, key allies. Probably the worst outcome potentially is for the Kurdish forces in northeastern Syria who have done the bulk of the fighting and are like our key allies who are they're worried now about getting slaughtered by ISIS, Assad, and the Turks yep. who view them as a terrorist group. Yep. They're also openly discussing whether to just release 3,200 ISIS prisoners. So I don't know. I mean, maybe we take this in pieces. Like, what do you think of tweeting uh, all troops getting out of Syria? Whatever. Yeah, before we get to the decision itself, the process was a complete train wreck. And the way to think about this is that those U.S. troops in Syria facilitate a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? So they facilitate the training and organization of those Kurdish fighters who've actually been defeating ISIS on the ground. Yeah. They facilitate the arming of those people. They facilitate the other allied forces that are active in, in Syria and their countries. Like, you know, the Australian prime minister was just going to go visit their really? troops there. He was in Iraq and didn't know. <laughs> oh, that, come on. No, I'm seriously. Unbelievable. He, he had, you know, uh, he finds out by the tweet. They facilitate the airstrikes, right? So yeah. the, they, they help identify the targets that we then take out with airstrikes. So a lot of activity is tied to those couple thousand troops. Mm -hmm. Um, and aid groups, we should say. And aid groups, you know, certainty that they can go into certain places, obviously, if they're U.S. troops there. So by having no process, like let's hypothetically say you think it's a good idea to wind down our, our presence in Syria. And I think there's arguments to do so. But you need to set this out on a timeline and say, OK, if we're pulling out, you know, how do we phase that? Do our allies pull out in concert with us? Mm -hmm. You let them be a part of that decision making. How can DOD create hedges, you know, through air power and other things to make sure that they're keeping the heat on ISIS? Um, the reason you have a process that brings together the State Department, the Defense Department, our own government and hashes this out over a period of months. And then you're very transparent with your allies, mm -hmm. the Kurds on the ground, the other countries. So everybody can prepare for right. this withdrawal. And right. he did none of that. None. Right. And then the second problem is. What's clear is we've kind of had two policies. We've had like the John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, you know, neocon policy, which is we are going to confront Iran in Syria. And I always thought that was problematic. But you had Bolton saying things like we're going to stay in Syria until the threat from Iran is addressed, which is kind of staying there forever. Forever. Iran's always been in Syria and always. By know, the way, we literally had this fight about Iraq a decade. It's earlier. the same thing it's that so we had dumb. that fight about. Right. So that was a worry to me. But the, the problem is. Other governments have been talking to Bolton and Pompeo. So they've been planning off of what they've heard from Bolton and Pompeo, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're the Brits or the Australians, the Iraqi government, the Kurds, the Turks, you've been hearing one policy this whole time from the administration. Now the president says something totally different. It just shows the extent to which nobody can count on us anymore. Nobody yeah. can – they don't know who to trust in the government. They don't know what Trump's going to do at any given moment. And that – Whatever you think of the decision, that's a very dangerous way to manage U.S. national security. Yeah, I mean, I mean, right, let's say you're, uh, you know, the top military officer in a foreign country, and you read yeah. in the New York Times that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was not involved in the yeah. decision-making process and learned of it when it went public. And your planes have been bombing ISIS targets. Maybe your troops have been on the ground in Syria. You are not going to follow us again, mm -hmm. right? In other words, like, let's say we have to do something next year or the year after that. Why would you join a U.S.-led coalition on anything if the rug can get pulled out from under you like this? Yeah. So back on these Kurdish forces for a minute, the, the Syrian Democratic Forces are they're mostly made up of Kurdish fighters from the YPG, the People's Protection Unit. So they're, these Kurdish forces, I mean, they've been recruiting a bunch of uh, anti-ISIS Arab fighters who now make up a big bulk of their force, which I, I read in, I believe, the New York Times that they have up to 75,000 fighters. Uh, we've been training them, advising them, equipping them with these 2,000 or so special operations guys in Syria, President Erdogan of Turkey, who views these Kurds yeah. as a terrorist group, yes. insurgency, whatever, 
said that he's about to imminently attack northeastern Syria to take them out. Trump had a call with Erdogan and then apparently made this decision shortly after. That seemed very weird to me. Yeah. So when we started this, you know, the way in which the counter-ISIL campaign unfolded is in the Obama administration, we started in Iraq and started bombing ISIS targets, supporting Iraqi security forces on the ground. And then when we went into Syria, because uh, we followed ISIS into Syria, we worked with the Kurds, the YPG. They were the most organized fighting force. They wanted to fight ISIS. They wanted to work with us, um, in part to address Erdogan's concerns. And here's what Erdogan's concerned about, right? There are Kurds in Iraq who've wanted to have an independent country for a long mm-hmm. time, and he's worried that the Kurds in Syria will want to have an independent country. That borders Turkey. Turkey has a huge Kurdish minority. And Erdogan's long-term fear is that you have an independent Kurdish homeland that could cut into Turkey, right? Because mm-hmm. the Kurds in Turkey would probably rather live in independent Kurdistan. So he's worried that if you get armed autonomous Kurds in northern Syria, as in northern Iraq, you're creating the basis for what becomes uh, a future Kurdish state. So we had to hold hands with the Turks very carefully as we started to provide arms to these Kurdish fighters. We insisted that they uh, recruit Arab fighters too. So it's not a, a single sectarian group, but rather it's Kurds and Arabs fighting together against ISIS. And that's the force that ultimately took Raqqa with mm-hmm. U.S. air support mm-hmm. and, and the rest of it um, and kind of eliminated uh, the the territory that ISIS was holding. Now, Turkey was always agitating to go in and they said they wanted to fight ISIS, but we always suspected that part of their agenda was to deny territory from the Kurds mm-hmm. and, and potentially ultimately to confront the Kurds. So if, yes, the U.S. just pulls out, those Kurds would be very vulnerable to Turkish military operations. And we've seen Turkey try to attack Kurdish forces inside of northern Iraq, too, for instance. So if you're a Kurd looking at this, you can't help but wonder if you got sold out in that phone call with Erdogan. The, the Trump talked to Erdogan's like, hey, I'm pulling out. Erdogan said, you know, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll take care of ISIS. But what Erdogan is really thinking about is I'll take care of these Kurds, right? And these Kurds are suddenly, who've lost thousands and thousands of people in the fight against ISIS, probably feeling very vulnerable, feeling like they're going to get squeezed between Assad and Iran and Turkey. And we've been the protection for them. And, and now we're gone. Just brutal. Let's talk about the reaction for a minute. I mean, Lindsey Graham was apoplectic. Most Republican members of Congress were apoplectic. Lindsey Graham said he's going to tweet that he's not letting this go. Oh, at, shit. At That's totally going to. Oh, my God. That will change everything. Just owned him. Just owned him. He's going to tweet back at him. This is another favorite will of mine. Will it be a reply or a retweet with comment? You know, I, like we're we're going to have to find out yeah. if it's a quote tweet. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be important. <laughs> quote tweet's uh, a big deal. Bob Corker, who's currently the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was apparently sitting in the yeah. White House waiting <laughs> for a meeting with Trump about Syria yeah. when they announced this policy and then canceled yeah. the meeting. So. A man, a man who's had control of the chief oversight committee on foreign policy for two years and done absolutely fucking nothing <laughs> with it and then goes out and gives mean Trump quotes to newspapers and tweets sad things like Jeff Flake and literally has done nothing, nothing. Uh, from his chair. One person who was very happy, notably, was Vladimir Putin. This allows him to have free reign and yeah. – Prop Assad up until he fully takes control of the country and it's back to square one. Yeah, and not have, I mean, essentially, you know, the Russians and the Iranians have the maximum influence in Syria. Us having a presence in eastern Syria, um, at least, well, we should step back here. This is, it's it's not just withdrawing troops. He's already withdrawn support for the opposition Mm -hmm. and he's already cut the humanitarian assistance we're providing. So he's, he's essentially... You know the mil- the troops are the only that seem to piss off the Republicans, but there's been a broader disengagement from Syria, yes, which was the possibility for there to be some counterbalance as Syria kind of freezes in place and their discussions about the future politics of the country. You know, you'd want the U.S. to help be a voice for uh, other groups in Syria other than Assad uh, and Hezbollah, and now that voice is diminished. So that's good for Putin. That's good for Iran. Interestingly, that's very bad for Israel. Israel, uh, Netanyahu, has been worried about the presence of Iranian forces in southern Syria. So he loved the Bolton talk about staying there and mm-hmm. countering the, the Iranian presence. Um, so, again, you know, uh, it, yeah. it's a good day for Putin. It's uh, it's uh, clearly not a good day for Syrian Kurds and U.S. allies. Yeah, no- noticeably quiet from Netanyahu on this issue, which surprised me. Um, and I should say, by the way, I think we should have had a plan to draw down our forces in Syria. Well, so like, let's talk about I, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, OK, let's let's say the process fouls are all gone. 
and Trump announced today that he was going to get all troops out within six months or something. Yeah. Support that. I mean, people yeah. are saying that there are echoes in this decision of Obama's decision to get all U.S. troops out of Iraq, which yeah. obviously had a lot longer lead time. <laughs> yeah, you had I a mean, fully trained up uh, and established yeah. Iraqi security forces yeah. who ended up being terrible fighters. It's just it's an incredibly lazy take. You know, I saw the David Sanger piece uh, in The New York Times. It said essentially, oh, this is just like what Obama did in Iraq. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you were there, Tommy. We spent a year in meetings. Yeah. <laughs> um, we explored a variety of fallen forces. We explored whether the Iraqis would provide legal protections to U.S. troops inside of Iraq. We processed uh, this question, and we de- ultimately decided that we had an existing status of forces agreement that required U.S. troops to leave Iraq at the end of 2011. Mm-hmm. We were not able to negotiate with the Iraqis some follow-on agreement that could provide legal protections for our troops. So it was unclear if uh, our troops would be vulnerable in Iraq and what their mission would be. And Obama ultimately decided, you know what, in this circumstance, I'm going to pull all troops out. Um, so it, it didn't pop up on a tweet out of the blue. Right. We had a multi-month process that was all geared towards uh, how do you responsibly draw down. I think you could say, OK, look, ISIS has lost most of its territory. There is still an ISIS presence that needs to be dealt with, but it doesn't demand the same commitment of U.S. forces. I was worried about the mission creep, this discussion of confronting Iran, all kinds of ways in which suddenly you get U.S. troops in there and they have more missions and then you need more troops and and there's risk of greater conflict. I think what you say is like, okay, let's figure out over the next year how to draw down these forces. And, And over the course of that year, you're able to both coordinate with allies who may be drawing down their own forces. You're able to build what is the platform that's going to su- support continued U.S. airstrikes. You know, we may need to have some intelligence capability uh, that allows us to target airstrikes once we don't have troops on the ground. You try diplomatically to work to create some protection for the steering Kurds through mm-hmm. your talks with the Turks. I mean, there are ways to, under <clears throat> normal foreign policy circumstances to say, I'm setting the objective of drawing these troops down over the course of, say, the next year, and and you manage it responsibly. Trump just tweets, we're getting out, and we're getting out in 30 days. Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of things he does. Like sometimes people ask me, like, well, tell me one thing you like that Trump has done as if they're trying to prove that I'm – you know, inflexibly. You got to get in the both Trump. sides club. Yeah, to get in the both sides, to be credible, you have to say nice things about Trump. But the problem is, even when he does things that I can see the rationale for, he does them in, in such a half-assed, yeah. egotistical, unpresidential way that it's, it's, it's impossible to kind of get behind the way in which he does it. Yeah. Last question on Syria. Let's say he announced in a year, all these guys are out. What then do you think the best case scenario would have been? Is it ISIS is sort of defeated in terms of holding any territory, but probably remains as an insurgency. The Kurds have the northeastern part of Syria as some sort of quasi-independent state, and then Assad just resumes control over most yeah, of the rest. I think if you had a normal functioning administration for this whole time, right, mm-hmm. The there are two or three basic challenges, right? One is humanitarian, and we should be providing more humanitarian assistance yes. to support the Syrian people and, and, and refugees in other places, and we should be resettling refugees. So you know, we all agree on that, I think, in this room at least, sure. and Trump has not done that. But then there's uh, the future politics of the country. And I think in some ways Syria looks kind of like Lebanon in the sense that you have a, a horrific civil war, and, and now it's kind of frozen in place where Assad controls mm-hmm. kind of one part of the country – that is, in, you know, the most important part of the country. It's a, the, along the Mediterranean. It's where a lot of the population is. But frankly, he does not control huge swaths of territory in east and northern Syria. Mm-hmm. And you have some political negotiation about how is power going to be shared in this country going forward. And clearly, Assad is likely to maintain, you know, his grip over the territory he controls. But we'd be trying to negotiate some autonomy for other groups, some safe places that they can, you know, live without the fear of bombardment in northern Syria and eastern Syria. Um, so the, the area that was kind of under our control, or at least where our allies uh, on the ground control territory, they could be in some negotiation of what the settlement is. Mm-hmm. The last piece is the counterterrorism piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there I think, you know, we maintain the capacity like we do in Afghanistan and allegedly parts of Pakistan, I should add, Um the capacity if we see ISIS regenerating to kind of take an airstrike. But you don't necessarily need ground troops to maintain a counterterrorism platform. Right. 
What a mess. Especially if you have allies on the ground. If, especially if we have Kurds who can say, hey, yeah. we're a little worried about this ISIS camp over here, you know, and, and we can work with them to take that up. At the end of the day, I support getting our guys out of Syria, but I do seriously worry about all these Kurds who we've been supporting and working with who now could be left to survive in a very tough place. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So one other sort of news of the week thing I want to ask you about. There were reports this week that Major League Baseball and the Cuban Baseball Federation struck a deal to let Cuban players join the Major League organizations without defecting. You worked on this, yeah. probably this specific deal. You worked, yeah, certainly worked yeah. on the Cuba negotiations. Like, What does that mean, and why is it important? Yeah, this is a total like passion project of mine because I like baseball and I like Cuba. Um, <laughs> so the, here's the problem. The problem is... The only way under because of the U.S. embargo and just because of the the frosty relations in the U.S. and Cuba, the only way that Cuban players used to be able to get into Major League Baseball is to defect. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the most famous cases of that are like, you know, if people were in the U.S. and they like jumped a fence and ran. But a lot of Cuban players get trafficked to other countries. Right. So they end up paying smugglers, you know, to go to Mexico and, and there, there's horror stories, and, and Major League Baseball told me some of these horror stories, that's why they were interested, of essentially people foregoing all their travel documents mm-hmm. and giving away all their life savings to be smuggled someplace, to be stranded there. And, you know, it was a great source of danger to Cuban baseball players. And also, 
if they came to the U.S., they kind of had to cut ties to right. Cuba, and their their families are still there, yeah. and and so it was really difficult situation where you have these great baseball players in Cuba, and yet you have this kind of huge humanitarian risk associated with them trying to play baseball in the United States. So we started to we tried to remove all the policy impediments to Cuban players being able to sign Major League Baseball. So, for instance, we changed the regulations so that Cubans could take back their whole salary that they made in the U.S. to Cuba, right? It used to be that there were limits on that and, and, and the embargo made it difficult for someone, ironically, for Cubans to actually do well and make money in the United States and be able to take that money back to Cuba. So that was a regulatory change we made in part with an eye towards having it be possible for Cuban athletes to, to, to go back to Cuba. Then the Cubans had to figure out a formula with Major League Baseball where in other countries, Cuban players go to play in Japan and they just have to pay a portion of their salary to the government. Oh, man. Um, and they can't do that in the in the U.S., obviously, because of the embargo. So the a, any any uh, contributions that Cuban players want to make back in Cuba have to be to Cuban baseball and to support, like, programs for young Cuban kids playing baseball. The Cubans very much wanted it to be so that if you play in MLB, you can still play on the Cuban national team and mm-hmm. world baseball competitions. And then there was this final question of like how many Cubans can be drafted in any year because Cubans don't want to lose everybody in their league. They have right, a pretty right, good baseball right, right. league. So all this stuff had to be negotiated. But the bottom line is baseball should be something that brings people together. Yeah. Americans like baseball and Cubans like baseball. It, it should also be the case that if a Cuban player wants to play in MLB, he shouldn't have to risk his life to do so. He shouldn't have to say goodbye to his family forever. And so we were trying to remove all of these obstacles for MLB. Uh, and, and, and it's just great news that they got this done. I hope at some point – There'd be a, a MLB team in Havana. That, that would be, be so totally cool. awesome, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I'm glad they got this done. Let's hope that uh, Trump and idiots like Marco Rubio. Yeah, they're walk complaining it about it. Yeah, it's yeah. what's well, Rubio like? This guy says he wants to help the Cuban people, and like all the approaches he embraces are wildly unpopular in Cuba and and fuck over the Cuban people, right? Yeah. Like, who in Cuba is for not letting their players? Like play on the biggest stage. Like who who is Marco Rubio standing up for other than his his own hardline political right. interests in uh, South Florida? I'm sure it gives them enormous pride to see like great yes. Cuban baseball yeah, so players. Yes, Puig and yeah. you know, Cespedes and yeah. depends on the season, but yeah, yeah, you know, Puig, yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, a couple of issues where we wanted to look forward because we think that there could be some you know interesting developments or changes on these issues in 2019. We have talked a lot about Israel recently on this show. Some of it was pegged off of uh, an interview I did with Congresswoman-elect Ilhan Omar because she said she supports the BDS movement. There's also, like, right now, as we speak, a bipartisan bill being debated in Congress that would prohibit U.S. companies from joining any boycotts of Israel. So, like, that sort of question of sanctions or boycotts has really been swirling recently. It's clear that uh, Washington and the foreign policy establishment in Congress is almost entirely against BDS, and I don't want to relitigate that argument. But there was an interesting poll out uh, by the University of Maryland recently that shows that 40% of Americans support imposing some kind of sanctions against Israel if Israeli settlements in the West Bank continue to expand, and that includes a majority of Democrats who support that position. So I think that polling surprised me, but it also made me wonder again— about something you and I have discussed offline, that there could be space or the likelihood for a Democrat in the presidential primary in 2020 to try to run to the left of traditional U.S.-Israeli political positions. And I don't think that means embracing BDS, but you could see a much tougher position on settlements, for example, because it does seem like support for those types of policies is higher than people might think. Yeah. So that's just something I've, I've been watching. I was wondering what you... What yeah, you... no. Well, first of all, we already see it a bit. Like, I know Bernie Sanders and Dianne Feinstein mm-hmm. came out against the BDS legislation. Yeah. Um, and they said, look, they don't support BDS, but this legislation is pretty extreme. It basically... It's, you know, basically criminalizing speech, right? I mean, if people... Yeah, sh- you clearly know, unconstitutional. Yeah, people should be... And, and courts have already struck down some of these state BDS bills that essentially criminalize political speech because people say just saying that you know your company you know that you're gonna not you know invest in israeli settlements could put you on the wrong side of the law here um so i thought the bernie staking that position out was an indication of how the politics on this are, are a, a bit fluid i also think that there's always been this odd disparity between public opinion particularly in the democratic party and 
the way the conversations had in Washington. So, for instance, the, the optic of the Iran deal was, oh, this is a big problem for Obama and the Jewish community because APAC opposed the Iran deal and really aggressively opposed mm-hmm. the Iran deal. But a majority of American Jews supported the Iran deal. In fact, in higher numbers than the rest of the population. Really? Yeah. So there's always been this weird disparity between what everybody feels like the accepted line is and where the public actually is on these issues. And I, I think that, that that is just growing, that gap between public opinion related to Israeli policy and uh, elite policymaking in Washington, that gap is growing. And I do think that opens up space for a pretty interesting debate <clears throat> in Democratic primary because Netanyahu's policies are moving Israel so far to the right, right. Um, the, you know, on settlements, on nationality bill, uh, that you, know, y- you can't really toe that line without being totally out of step with where the Democratic Party electorate is. Yeah, and, and the situation on the ground has just so fundamentally changed. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we've moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and because of that decision, the Palestinians have boycotted, I think, any meeting with the U.S. envoy ever since. Uh, Nikki Haley said that Israel wants a peace agreement, but it doesn't need one. So it sounds like she is maybe following some voices yeah. in Israel who were walking away from two-state solution. I mean... You could see someone saying, I think we need to fundamentally rethink our approach to this challenge. I mean, to sum it up, Netanyahu has said publicly now that a Palestinian state won't happen on his watch. Right. The people who would be most likely to succeed Netanyahu are to his right. The settlements are making a Palestinian state impossible. The Palestinians are living in decrepit and dehumanizing conditions in Gaza, right? And that's just the reality. So mouthing platitudes about supporting two-state solution, but then supporting the Israeli government on all these issues isn't going to be a credible position anymore, mm-hmm. right? And I think that opens up space in the Democratic debate to, to test what does it mean to support Israel and support the Israeli people and to oppose you know, terrorism and to support Israel's security, but to not support the policies of this Israeli government. Mm-hmm. And so taking positions on providing more assistance into Gaza to help Palestinians, taking positions on you know, creating actual international pressure on Israel related to its settlement expansion. You know, taking positions on in public positions as we did at the very end of the Obama administration over what a Palestinian state should look like to create at least a basis uh, for that. Right. Uh, I think all these things would be on the table, and I think people would make a mistake to assume that everybody's just going to kind of hew to the pro Netanyahu line in mm-hmm. the Democratic Party, which has been the case in the past. Yeah, I think it will be very interesting to watch how these discussions emerge especially in states like Iowa that are pretty liberal. Yeah. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Another important issue is North Korea. I think it's clear that the North Korea talks, the Singapore summit, was just a failure. Um, (laughs) The Koreans just this week said they're not going to give up their nuclear arms until we do. Meanwhile, there's all this reporting that they're expanding their missile program. They repeatedly just blow off Pompeo when he's supposed to meet with them. It feels like there is a run-out-the-clock strategy. But my question going forward into 2019 is, like, 
Do you think it's possible to go back to a tougher position on North Korea the way we did before? Like, would the world reimpose sanctions or have they accepted this new reality? In particular, President Moon of South Korea seems yeah. fully vested in the embrace of Kim Jong-un and North Korea and like hoping against hope that this rapprochement works. So what happens if North Korea inevitably, you know, tests an IBCBM or a nuclear warhead? Like what, where do you think this goes? So, uh, you know, I get to do this once per show. The imagine if we, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, we negotiated the Iran deal, which had these highly intrusive inspections and verification regime and everybody could read the reports every yep. three months about what they were doing and they're dismantling infrastructure and they're shipping nuclear material out of the country. And we got raked over the coals for the whole year and a half that we had the Iran deal on hand by Congress, by the media. Imagine if we fucking flew to Singapore and met this <laughs> fat dictator and cut some deal with no inspections, no requirements whatsoever in the North Koreans, said we solved the threat. And like nobody's paying attention to this. Nobody it's like, cares. oh, yeah. And every now and then Trump tweets out what a great guy Kim Jong-un is, right? Um, you want to meet him again? Yeah, he's looking forward to another meeting. I mean, so, okay, that was my complaint. Infuriating. On your question... No, I think what Trump has basically done is, and this was a concern some of us had at the beginning, like diplomacy is great. Yet another thing that Trump did that I could support in principle, but in practice, the way he did it was idiotic because by front loading the head of state summit, by heaping praise on Kim, he sent the message to the world that, oh, I'm legitimizing this guy. Right. And then to follow up on it while, you know, by bragging about the beautiful exchange of letters he had with Kim and Mm -hmm. by calling him such a great leader and all this stuff. The message to everybody else around the world is, okay, this problem is off the front burner. Meanwhile, the North Koreans have given us nothing for that, nothing. They're not giving up any of their nuclear infrastructure. There are no inspections. And I think that if you're China or the other countries that we would need to enforce sanctions, you're thinking, well, actually, I thought this problem was solved. Trump said it was solved. We don't like to enforce sanctions. It's difficult for us to do. I think it will be almost impossible to go all the way back to where we were where North Korea was cast as this illegitimate actor, we had a strict sanctions regime on. You know, if Trump tried to pivot back to pressure, I think he'd have a hard time dragging China and other countries to mm-hmm. it. So I don't know what happens here in the next couple of years. I mean, I think what the North Koreans are aiming for is just the de facto acceptance of them as a regime and of their nuclear weapons. Right. It feels like and, we're heading there. Yeah. And they, they, you know, maybe they don't need to test this stuff anymore, right? So they just have it. Everybody accepts it. And over time, sanctions begin to erode and we get to a place where their play worked. You know, they have their nuclear weapons and and uh, they have their security and ultimately they begin to open up some of their economy. That feels like where this is headed unless Trump decides that he's going to turn back to being, you know, anti-rocket man. Yeah. Hopefully he's too invested in no, wanting I, this to be And I think if you're Moon, go. yeah, if you're Moon, you're like, you know what, given the choice between having this nuclear armed na- you know neighbor or president of the United States who could get us in a war that could get us all killed that's why moon's like you know what i'm all in <laughs> yeah. i'm all in on the you know i'll i'll we change the calculus I'll, we'll praise yeah. trump and all this stuff is and as long as we can survive the next 2 years yeah speaking of nuclear annihilation let's talk russia for a minute not not the hacking not the Mueller investigation stuff but the much more important i would argue scarier traditional great power dynamic and nuclear arms race set of issues. So Putin did his annual press conference just recently, and he warned about the rising threat of nuclear war between the U.S. because we are pulling out of all these arms control treaties. Yeah. Uh, specifically, he referred to the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and our apparent reluctance to renegotiate the New START Treaty. So just quickly on the INF Treaty, what that is, basically back in the 80s, the Soviet Union deployed a missile to Europe that was capable of carrying a bunch of nuclear warheads, so we followed suit with our own hardware. The reason this scared the hell out of everybody is because these missiles launch and land in as little as 10 minutes. So nuclear annihilation could happen quickly and by mistake, and there's no way to walk it back. Yeah. So this treaty, the INF Treaty, prohibited land-based cruise missiles or ballistic missiles that have a range of like 300 to 3,400 miles, so you're not you know, on this knife's edge at all times. It should also be noted that Russia has been violating the INF Treaty yeah. for a while. We, the Obama administration, accused them of. But it, it does strike me that Putin has a point that the United States, led by John Bolton, you you, you want to know where yeah. that mustachioed creep is, is yeah. hiding in these kinds of issues, is yeah. pulling us out of and walking away from 
these major arms control negotiations. Like this feels like a major, major issue that could arise in the next year. Yeah. And then, you know, you had the New START Treaty, which restricted substantially the number of nuclear uh, weapons and, and launchers that we could have deployed. If you dismantle this architecture of arms control between the U.S. and Russia, it's incredibly dangerous, right? Because that limits both the numbers of weapons we have, the numbers of weapons we have deployed, the types of missiles that we can you know, have deployed to put wep- nuclear warheads on. And, you know, it puts us back in a position where we're potentially having a nuclear arms race. Also, you get verification regimes, right? So you get the mm-hmm. ability to monitor each other's what they're what the other party's doing like are they are they keeping their commitments and that's obviously a, a part of why you have arms control regimes so that there's transparency mm-hmm. in nuclear arsenals i do think this kind of this hostility to any international agreement or treaty this is another example where underneath the radar the trump people are dismantling architecture that's been in place for decades much of which was set up by Republican presidents, you know, mm-hmm. like Richard Nixon right. and Ronald <laughs> right. Reagan, who did arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. And they're leading us in the direction of a world in which there's just like no rules and no international agreements. And we'll be back in a place where, you know, we're in a nuclear arms race. And that's that's crazy for a host of reasons, right? Including the fact that, as we talked about on the pod, like, we're getting ready to spend another trillion dollars to build some new nuclear weapons. Like, what is the point of that, right? And so you want this set of agreements in place to prevent mistakes, to prevent mm-hmm. uh, escalation, to have transparency in what the other party's doing. You like ultimately to limit and reduce the numbers of nuclear weapons around the world and, and go in the direction of trying to eliminate nuclear weapons. Uh, And Trump is leading us in the opposite direction. And that's an incredibly destabilizing thing. It could lead other nations to want to get nuclear weapons. Uh, It could lead us to have no idea what the Russians are doing. Uh, It it could jack up our budgets because we're back in an arms race. There's nothing good about this. Yeah, there's nothing good about it. I I just... Of all the things for Trump to this, I mean, I guess maybe he just described it to him and say Obama supported all these policies, so we should reject them. But I would would hope that some sort of better minds would prevail in that White House on on these issues. It doesn't seem like there's any constituency for just pulling out of arms control completely, unless you're John Bolton. Yeah, it's Bolton. You're right. And and where this comes together with his other crazy policies are there are a lot of countries that could build nuclear weapons and don't. And the main reason they don't is because there are international agreements that <laughs> restrict them from doing mm-hmm. so, but also because they know they trust us, right? So Japan, South Korea, countries like this, they trust us to be their security guarantee. Mm -hmm. And the combination of Trump dismantling the nuclear arms regime and also being an unreliable ally, we could live in a world in five or 10 years where more and more countries are acquiring nuclear weapons. And that's that's a bad thing. (laughs) Because the more countries have nuclear weapons, just the more risks there are that there's some conflict that actually leads to the use of a nuclear weapon. Yeah, we don't need the Saudis. Exactly. it's, It's scary enough living in a world where India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons and are constantly on the knife's edge of conflict. That replicating that in different parts of the world is is not it's not a good idea. Not a good idea. It's one thing we haven't had to worry about that much, and and I don't want to have to worry about that on top of everything else. <laughs> no, I don't either. <laughs> All right, to to conclude this really uplifting New Year's show, we wanted to do a quick sort of power ranking type <laughs> thing to see how everyone feels about these some horned heads of states as you head into 2019. If you are if you're Vladimir Putin, how you feeling going into 2019? So I think he's feeling just fucking great. You think you he's know? up? Yeah, I mean, I think he's up because, like, you know, the U.S. is is in disarray. The Western alliance is in disarray. All these things he wanted. You know, everybody always says, did he want sanctions relief? No, he wanted the U.S. to be not a credible actor anymore. And he wanted the U.S. and Europe to be divided. And he wanted these kind of right-wing creeps to take over more and more European countries. And he wanted the U.K. in disarray from Brexit. So he's got kind of what he's bet on mm-hmm. and he's just kind of sitting back this new year's like you know with i don't know what vladimir putin drinks uh, I, th- I don't think he drinks i don't think he, he yeah he's a teetotaler is another example tommy that that's why we don't like him it's better to drink yeah um, Mer- uh, I mean, all, all, all kinds of respect for people who need to give up drinking but these guys like trump and putin you you know you wonder if we'd be in They'd be a little less uptight. Yeah. Um, you know, Tip O'Neill and Reagan used to go <laughs> yeah, have a right. drink at night. Actually, we don't think that's true. I actually don't think they. Uh, Historians uh, have told many of us <laughs> yeah, that yeah. that's actually a bullshit <laughs> Washington trope kind of, that just exists yeah. forever. But yeah, hey, that, that, don't let me get in the way of a good story. So I'm going to take I a, think I think Putin's sitting pretty right. Yeah, now. he's sitting pretty. Okay. Wishful thinking contrarian. What if he's peaked? 
And what if he's looking at the U.S. and saying, oh, God, this special counsel thing is closing in on Trump. I'm going to have a new president soon. My life is about to get worse. That's my hope and a prayer. I think the scariest thing for Putin was the midterm election. That's um, true. Because if the pendulum swings back hard in the U.S., including the next presidential election, you could see it begin to swing across the West. And you could see this authoritarian tide reverse. And that's mm-hmm. the thing Putin's most afraid of. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine two euros and, and get your take. Yeah. How do you feel right now if you're Emmanuel Macron in France yeah. or Theresa May in, uh, in oh, the UK? I, I suspect uh, it could be the same answer. I think Theresa May is at the bottom of the power rankings, actually. I'm going to put her below Macron. I mean, she has no answer. She has no way out here. Like, she's got a shitty Brexit deal that nobody likes. She's got the hard Brexit, right? The Brexit with no deal that would be like a national catastrophe, the worst own mm-hmm. goal of any country in the history of the world or at least recently, or she has to give up and have another vote on this. Yep. Either way, her time as prime minister is done and everybody was just going to blame her, right? So she's at the bottom. Macron, he's on like kind of life support. He was rotting high a year ago. These protests have knocked him down. But we have to keep in mind, like French presidential terms are long. You know, he can weather this. The question is whether he can recover some political standing in the country. Yeah, that's a good point. And internationally, I yeah. bet. Okay. I think I'm, I'm with you on both of those. So Xi Jinping just gave his big speech on the 40th anniversary of, yeah. uh, of the party. He has consolidated power in a way that I think even surprised some yeah. China experts. But he's in the middle of a trade war. How do you think he's feeling? A little stressed. I still think, you know, right now he's probably the most powerful man in the world. Mm. Um which is rare because the U.S. president has always been that. But but Trump is so unreliable. And people look at Xi and they know he's going to be around. Mm-hmm. And they know he's going to be around for a while. And they know they have to take him seriously. China's hugely expanded its influence. You know, the Trump presidency has been this mixed bag for them. The huge payoff for them is they're much more influential in Asia mm-hmm. and Africa and Latin America. They're basically coming in behind us in all the places where Trump is absent and filling uh, a lot of the space that the U.S. used to as a, as a trading partner, as a source of influence. Um, I think the trade war has stressed him out. The Chinese economy is slowing down because of it. He doesn't really know where Trump is headed with it. And it could be headed towards a global economic slowdown that hurts the Chinese economy and our economy. So, you know, Trump has kind of made them nervous um, because they don't know what the hell he's getting at and where this is all leading. I do think they have the capacity to wait him out, though, right? Mm -hmm. Because one thing Xi Jinping doesn't have to worry about is the next election, right? And so he knows that he can squeeze the U.S. in certain industries and states and compel Trump to make a deal or, you know, make it very hard for Trump to campaign for re-election. So he has cards to play. So the way I put it is he's, he's sitting generally pretty... They have some headwinds that they didn't want in their economy because mm-hmm. of this trade war. He's got some cards to play yet to deal with that. And so, you know, he's doing pretty good. Yeah, I think he's doing pretty good. I think that he uh, is probably a little more worried about the economic trends than we think because they're sitting on a yeah. mountain of hidden debt. That's that a good point. They That's don't talk point. about publicly. But uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. If I had absolute power in a country of a couple billion people, you know, you'd be, you're rocking. And if I'm the Chinese, I'm thinking to myself, I've gotten all the dividend from the Trump presidency, which is this diminution of American influence. And now I'm just dealing with the problems, which is this kind of arsonist in the global economy. So they may be getting a little tired of Trump. Yeah, I bet. Uh, How do you think our boy Bibi Netanyahu is doing over in in Israel? I mean, you know, the indictments are are stacking up, potential indictments, I should say. So, you know, I I think they're too, like, you get the sense that this could kind of slide away from him pretty quickly. Like his high point was probably, you know, year one of the Trump presidency embassy move yep. into the end of the Iran deal. And like, that was kind of the top of the mountain. <laughs> and and now he's looking down the mountain. He's got potential indictments coming, an election to deal with, you know, what the hell he's going to do about the Palestinian issue. Um, so I think actually like he's on a downward slope here. Hmm. But he's a survivor, and he so survivor. you know he could. That could be a very long downward slope. I know it's a, the thing about Netanyahu is as infuriating is, and sometimes you think maybe, well, maybe he's a bad politician. But then you look at, you know, I was watching the A and E Clinton yeah. tapes about impeachment and et cetera, and like you know, there's Bibi there's Netanyahu, Netanyahu in the Oval Office, yeah. sitting next to Bill Clinton yeah. when he's talking about the Lewinsky twenty years issue. ago. It's like, yeah. God, go away. Yeah, last one. Angela Merkel. Oh. Stalwart. Uh, stalwart friend of the pod. 
you know, you know what? It, it, like she kind of found some footing. She basically made it so that she could leave on her terms, right? So she said she's not going to serve past this term. Her kind of handpicked successor got chosen as the next leader of of her political party. Um, so much weaker position than she was a couple of years ago, but she kind of righted the ship mm-hmm. and I think at least heads into next year thinking I may be able to to define the terms of my own exit from the stage. And that's a better place. I mean, I think what's notable about this list, Tommy, is that the leaders of democracies are kind of on their back foot. You know, Theresa May, yep. Merkel, Macron, uh, the leaders of these authoritarian countries have had a better run under Trump. Mm-hmm. And the goal for all of us should be how do we swing that pendulum in the other direction? And I cannot tell people enough how much like that is not something that's going to be settled by people Davos. It's going to be settled by the people listening to this pod, right? Because the other side has been well-organized, well-financed. You know, you've got Bannon traveling around Europe. You've got common media platforms with Breitbart, common mm-hmm. political strategies. If the energy we brought to the midterms can be extended through the U.S. presidential election, but also across the progressive political movement and civil society around the world, there's like more of us than these people. And we can be sitting here in two or three years and be like, wow, like the pendulum has swung back away from this authoritarian creepiness to progressive uh, small D Democrats. Um, But we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. Well, that is a great, hopeful place to end it. Thank you all for listening to this show over the past two years. It means a lot to both of us. We get to talk about things we care about and try to focus attention on issues that might not otherwise get discussed in the news. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope everybody had a happy holiday and uh, it'll be an interesting 2019. Yeah, it will be interesting 2019. Hopefully we'll be allowed to talk to you all next year. Yes. (laughs) We'll still be here. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.